While we know that winter will give way to spring, there are times when we wonder if the season of COVID will ever end. We keep being told that if we hang on for just a couple more months, everything will return to normal. But days have stretched into weeks, months, and years. And we begin to wonder, what if COVID continues? What if our life never becomes the way we remember, the way we want life to be? If you are struggling with coping with life today, a life you don't want but cannot escape, you will want to listen to Vicki Hitzkiss, Kent Edwards, and Nathan Norman as they begin a new series of conversations in the book of 1 Samuel and peek into the life of a woman struggling in a life overflowing with inescapable challenges. Welcome to Crosstalk, a Christian podcast whose goal is for us to encourage each other to not only increase our knowledge of the Bible, but to take the next step beyond information into transformation. Our goal is to bring the Bible to life into all our lives. I'm Brian French. Today, Dr. Kent Edwards, Vicki Hitzkiss, and Nathan Norman start a discussion in the book of 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible handy, turn to 1 Samuel 1, verses 1 to 20, as we join their discussion. A study conducted six months ago by Harvard University discovered how deeply families in America have been affected by the COVID pandemic. Oh, there's a lot. Nathan and I were just talking about it. One way it's affected people that live in cities, 50% of all households in the four largest U.S. cities say they've had serious financial problems, depleted savings, trouble paying bills. A lot of people can't afford medical care. Hmm. Yeah, and over in my neck of the woods in the rural areas, 43% of rural households lost jobs. And I can attest to that because we lost a lot of families that had to move out of the area when they lost their jobs. Wow. Uh, with two-thirds of these households, 66%, reporting serious financial problems. Ouch. Ouch. And then ethnically, over 40% of Latinos, Blacks, and Native American households say they have exhausted their savings. Think about Seriously. that. Seriously, down to yeah, zero. Don't, ha don't have any savings at all. Wow. Whew. 36 of households with children face serious problems keeping their children's education going. 34% say they don't have internet access to allow schoolwork or their jobs during the pandemic. I don't know today how you can go on without an internet. A third of the people don't have internet today. Isn't yeah. that amazing? I mean, if you combine those things together, think of the stress that this must be placing on families all across our nation. In fact, the world. And, and that's in addition to what just COVID itself does, what people staying at home, being afraid to be sick, people getting right. sick, people dying. Right. All those pressures. And remember, it was six months ago, which as we record this podcast, we are deep into Omicron. And it is having, it has just raced through our country. And so my hunch is these numbers might actually be low. And the pressure's therefore higher. How would these abstract statistics affect the daily lives of families and marriages? Well, it's not a recipe for happiness, I can tell you. No. That. No. <laughs> Mar marriage is hard when things are going well. Imagine what, what have all this pressure on top of you. Yeah, oh, yeah. no kidding. Marriage issues, the stress we have because, you know, for the past two, two plus years, 
many children have been falling behind educationally, right? Oh, they all are. Is, is this going to destroy my child's chance for a better future? Are they going to miss out? And would it be fair to say that wives and mothers would not escape the pressure facing their families? In fact, they may even have to carry the lion's share of the pressure? I think so. You know, well, you read it on tea towels. If mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. But it's it's true. I think I think sex lives go if mother's not happy. I think um, marriages go if mama's not happy. Kids feel it. Kids pick up how their mother is feeling. Mothers worry about their marriages. They worry about their children. They mm -hmm. worry about themselves. They worry about their careers. They worry about their husband's career. I don't know if barometer is the right word, but it all goes. It all goes through the woman. They're the ones that not only experience it, but they feel it and then they radiate it. No, I think you're right. In fact, I'm told that even in the best of circumstances, at least in America, the majority of household responsibilities are, are given to the wife. Even if both work, they have the lion's share of work in the home. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's what is. And so you're right, Vicki. I think they are feeling the pressure at least as much as anyone else. So I suspect because of that, that women today may be able to see themselves in Hana. We're starting a new series today in the book of Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we are introduced to this woman, a remarkable woman, who was under, let's just say, remarkable stress. To begin to understand what that stress was, look at what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. Huh. Yeah, let's just pause there for a second. I know the verse continues, but let's just pause. He had two wives. Vicky is a woman. How do you hear those last four words. There is nothing good about those last four words. <laughs> let, let's say that she's prettier. Let's say she's younger. Let's say she's funnier. Let's let's say she's none of those things. There's just born in competition there. Born in. She's going to be cleaner. She's going to be less clean. She's going to be whatever it is. There's competition there. That is not a good scenario. It doesn't make for a happy home, does it? No. No, it does not. No. No. In fact, I can't think of a better way to blow up a relationship than what we read here. Certainly, God's intention in Genesis is clear. Adam and Eve, one man, one woman for life. We know that polygamy was tolerated in the Old Testament, never approved of, but it was tolerated. Have either of you known anyone who has been officially married to two people? I have not. No. no. Well, with Crosstalk being in Africa, among other places in the world, I have met some Kenyan students who have told me that their parents were polygamous. Really? And, wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested because I want to know how that goes. And they said it's absolutely terrible. There is jealousy, there is fighting, there is division between these uh, different families with the same father, right? I mean, they just, and they're fighting through their entire life, even after the father has died, 
these two different groups of people are fighting for the name and fighting for the assets that were left behind there. It's fighting conflict, 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 conflict. They say, I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you hear in our modern age, right? People are saying, well, you know, there, there's polygamy in the Old Testament, right? And they're arguing for this. And it's like, you, you, you have read the issues of polygamy, right? It never goes well. It never goes well. It's never positively portrayed. There's always problems. You must not know how to read a story if you think there's a positive portrayal of polygamy in the Old Testament. <laughs> oh, come on, Nathan. Abraham, right? Oh, I mean, oh my. He, he had a wife and, and uh, Hagar. They were together. Didn't How did that end up? Sarah trying to send Hagar out into the wilderness to die of starvation. Yeah, that, that, that ended well. Oh, yeah. And then it started nations that fought each other forever. and uh, To this day. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I'll give you that one. But how about uh, Jacob, right? I mean, he had two wives, Rachel and Leah, so that worked swimmingly, didn't it? Oh, it was terrible. And even though Rachel was the hot one and he loved her, she wasn't happy. She was still jealous of her sister because her sister could have children. And she knew her husband loved her, but she was still jealous of Leah because Leah had all the kids. Yeah. It, there's just nothing good about it. And it happens today. I mean, not legally polygamy in our country, of course, but that happens when um, a man or a woman has an affair. One woman knows that her husband has found her wanting in some ways and has taken a mistress. I cannot imagine the, the feelings of rejection of hurt, of anger. I think sometimes that even if it's not an affair, the a man's wife has died and she has um, another wife. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but if he brings the echo of that dead wife into the relationship, wish you could cook like my Mary did. I wish you would dress like my Mary did. Here's one of her dresses, put it on. The ghost of this woman from the past is walking around the house. And I think I can't imagine how much it would hurt her to know that her husband was not fully focused on her. And that's what Hannah had. She lived in a relationship where her, she did not enjoy the exclusive love of her husband. It gets worse. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 6, we read, not only was she having to share her husband. It says the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Mm. That's an interesting thing to say. It doesn't say she was infertile. It said the Lord closed Hannah's womb. Think of the burden that would have been. For many women, children are an important part of their identity. I mean, I think for all couples. Infertility is a, um, a major problem. And I know this couple, both husband and wife, desperately want children, but, but often for women, the desire to have a child is even greater. Month after month, they um, long for good news. There's a roller coaster emotion as the month progresses, only to find disappointment. I think for some women and some of our listeners, sometimes the heaviest weight for a woman to bear is the weight of empty arms without a child to hold. Yeah, and the hard part about this text is 
it doesn't say she's infertile. It says the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. So it's not merely just a matter of biology. God is actively involved in this childlessness. Yeah. And it doesn't say that Hannah knew that, does it? No. We know that that was happening. We don't know that she was aware. But all she does know is month after month there is no child. To make matters worse, not only is she in a shared relationship, unable to get pregnant, but in verse 2 we read, he had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Paneah. Paneah had children, but Hannah had none. Can you imagine the conversations that be taking place? One family working around the kitchen and um, kids are running around screaming and work has to be done. And there is Hannah without a child grabbing her skirt. There she is alone, chopping vegetables being asked to provide for the entire family, nudge, nudge. All this food needs to be prepared because Penea has children and you don't. In verse six, we read that her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Can you imagine what that home life would be like? Nightmare. Day after day, year after year. In fact, it, it gets even worse because we read starting in verse three, what did they do year after year? Year after year, Elkanah went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. <laughs> So I must confess, I have had got some input on this on one occasion from a woman as I was trying to explain the text and says, you don't understand it at all because you're a man. And I said, okay, help me. Look, like a typical man, he's got this problem, a huge problem, and he wants to express his love. So what does he do? He gives her meat. <laughs> a steak is not going to make things better. A steak is not the kind of affection she was looking for. I disagree with her some. I think, if he gave, well, because listen, it depends on how he gave it to her. If he just handed her a rump roast and sent her off. But if he said to her, I love you, I'm giving you twice as much because I love you. And I believe God can solve this. I want you to have this. Yeah. But then if you were the other wife, how would you feel? Well, he can't do it in front of her, but you know it's a private. <laughs> but, um, but, he, but he can't. It's a private conversation, and he says, "I'm giving you twice as much, and here's why." That's that's a very precious conversation. That could have been. I'm not. I don't know in the context that it was a private or whether it wasn't the big family meal when they all came together as a family event in the temple. Could have been, but I think there's another more serious problem going on. I think as they get together and they're in the temple and she's reminded because of her portion, a double portion, and the uh, number of kids on the other side of the table, that there's a spiritual issue. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 12, we read that Moses says, If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, the Lord your God will keep his covenant with you as he swore. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, 
you will be blessed more than any other people. And the end of verse 14, none of your men or women will be childless. Ooh. So what are the spiritual implications that Hannah may be feeling right now? She hasn't followed the law. She's a sinner. This is a punishment of God. She has failed. God has abandoned her because she has failed to live up to his expectations. In fact, it's interesting in Jewish law, even today, if you go online to the Jewish Encyclopedia, you'll see that if a woman does not have a child within seven years, the husband has every right to divorce her. Wow. Because clearly there's something wrong spiritually with her. Isn't that awful? Sure is. Yeah. I mean, think of the pressure that's on Hannah. She's got to share her marriage. She doesn't have children. Her rival wife is attacking her and provoking her, deliberately trying to make her life miserable. She thinks that God has abandoned her. I'm not surprised to read in verse 6 that because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And in verse 7 and following, we read, This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. <sighs> what kind of distress do you think Hannah is feeling at this moment? Well, I can tell you, when I get stressed, I eat. When I get really stressed, I don't eat. And hmm. I would think that would be true for her, too. She's like past the point. Yeah. I think she's at the end of a rope. I think this is an unlivable, unbearable home situation. And what are we afraid of? From a practical perspective, if you hear of a woman facing this kind of ongoing, relentless, decade-long situation, what are you afraid of? Suicide. Yeah, because what are her options? She doesn't have any. Can she get divorced? Nope. No. Can she seek alternate employment? She cannot. She cannot. She's like Hagar. She can wander in the desert and die, but she has no options, and she has no life. Vicki, I appreciate you sticking up for her husband, but when I read verse 8, I'm afraid I don't have the same sympathy, because there we read that her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And the answer is? No. No. <laughs> You idiot. The love for child is not the same as a love for a husband. I think she's got no one, no one to fall back on. Yeah, no one certainly understands her. No. I wonder how many women today listening in could identify with Hannah. Not in every respect, but certainly in the pressure that she feels. The pressures of COVID, as we've said, fall disproportionately on women's shoulders. The workload increases. They see the hurt that their children are experiencing. Their husbands try, but don't understand their pain or how to help them. I think there are times when we're faced with a situation that's so black and so bleak that there seems no way out. I can't endure it. I can't continue in it. I can't escape it. If you're feeling that way, Let's look at what Hannah did in this impossible situation. In verse 9, we read, what does she do? 
Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Okay, well, that's wonderful. Thank you, narrator, for telling us that she stood up. How many times do you think she stood up in her life? (laughs) (laughs) Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands of times. So this isn't just saying she physically stood up, although she did. But I think this is referring to she is standing up. She is making a decision. There's something significant. She's taking action. She's not giving into fatalistic realities of whatever will be will be. She's taking an action, however small or minute it is, it's action. Right. And then we read, now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost in the Lord's house. Yeah. So is it interesting the men in this passage don't seem to be getting very high marks. She's in agony. He's resting. Thank you. He's going to do even worse later. But in the meantime, he's just sitting there. But in verse 10, in verse 10 through verse 13, we see something really profound. Vicki, would, would you read that for us? Yes, I will. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So does that make sense to you? She stands up, makes a vow to the Lord. That makes sense. Does her vow make sense to you? No. Her prayer is, give me a son so that I can give him to you, right? I want this so I can give him away. Yeah. And and then she added that part about his hair will never get cut. That's kind of a funky thing to throw in. (laughs) At least in our, well, it is in our culture. I mean, who would ever think to add that? And he'll only wear left shoes or something. I mean, who would ever add that? (laughs) But it could be that's a reference to a Nazarite vow that he would be set apart in dedication to the Lord, kind of like Samson was. But my bigger concern here is just that the deal she makes, if you give me a son, that's what I want. I want a son. If you give me a son, then I'll give him back to you. Right. At the end of that deal, what has she not got? She doesn't have the thing she wants. She She's playing, let's make a deal with God, and it's so desperate. She wants a kid to be able to give him away, to, to have nothing in the end. So for our listeners who think that makes sense, I'd like to do business with you. Send me a... <laughs> Send me an email because it'd be like saying to someone, I want your car, I want your car, I want your car. And if you give me your car, I'll give it back to you. And at the end, you haven't got a car. You got nothing. (laughs) This is like the worst business deal in history. But yet it seems to make a profound impact on our life. We read in verse 13, Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Okay, now that's just embarrassing. Here, this woman's having one of the most profound moments of her life, and he thinks she's drunk. We're going to see later on. Eli's not uh, necessarily top drawer, servant of God. Not so, my lord, uh, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled, and I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring my soul out to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. That's my kind of woman. Mm. This woman has stood up. She's made a decision. She's come to a conviction. And when uh, Eli completely misinterprets what she has done, she tells him off. The attitude is completely different here, right? 
up until this point, she seems to have been trying to passively endure. Now she, she is a completely different woman. She says uh, in verse 18, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and? She ate. Huh. And her face was no longer downcast. Vicky, to your point, what seems to have happened? She has a change of heart because now she's gone away and she's eating something. Right. Her attitude is completely different. Yeah. And her face was no longer downcast. And we read in verse 19, early in the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord. This is a completely different woman. So why? What just happened? Why did that vow, which I don't understand, change everything in her life? Because previously, what she had wanted the most was a child. And that if she had a child, the basic needs of her life, the most important parts of her life would be fulfilled. But in that vow, she stood up and rearranged her priorities. In her vow, she says, if you give me a child, Lord, I'd still want a child, but I'll give that child back to you. Because what I want more than anything else is not a child. What I want now more than anything else is a child that will show me that you love me. I don't want the child as much as I want to know that I am your child. More than wanting to hold a child, I want you to hold me. I want you to love me. I want to know that you are my God and you care about me, that I am not ostracized. I am not been cast out of your presence. But I am your daughter. Prior to the making her vow, Hannah wanted a son more than anything else in life. But making a vow to give her son back meant that she now wanted something more than a baby. She wanted confirmation that God loved her. In making this vow, Hannah is saying more than anything else, she wants to experience acceptance, love, and intimacy with God. And what does God do? We read in verse 19 and 20. It says, early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So why was it? Why was it that we read earlier that the Lord had closed her womb? What was his purpose in that? He was drawing her closer to himself. Yeah. That was an act of love. It was saying to her, I want you to come to the point in your life where you want me more than anything else. And when she had made that commitment, he said, I'm not your enemy. I will give you the son. And he did. And we read in the end of chapter one, that when, true to her word, when Samuel was weaned, what did she do? She brought Samuel to Shiloh. She gave her son to the Lord as she had vowed. But Hannah said, although it was, I'm sure, just as difficult for her as it would have been for any one of our wives, I will do it. Because the person I love the most, the person I want the most, is the Lord. Look, 
we cannot always change our situation. We cannot always solve a difficult home life situation, but we can always change our affections. And here's something I've learned from this passage, that if all you want in life is God, then you will have everything you want in life because God will never say no to you. God will always respond to those who seek him, who want him more than anything else in life. In this bargain with God, ah, Hannah wasn't bargaining. She was surrendering to God. If all I can have is you, you are enough. Hannah wasn't trying to use God to get what she wanted. She changed what she wanted. And when she wanted intimacy with God, when she wanted his love more than anything else in life, then that is what God gave her. He gave her himself. I think of Asaph in Psalm 73, when he said something similar. Vicki, would you mind reading this portion of the Psalm for us? Whom have I in heaven but you? and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. When will we enjoy the life God wants us to have? When we want God more than anything. I trust that today's discussion of God's Word has been helpful and served as an encouragement to not just be hearers of the Word, but doers. Together, let's bring God's Word to life, to our lives this week. The Crosstalk Podcast is a production of Crosstalk Global, equipping biblical communicators so every culture hears God's voice. To find out more about this educational nonprofit organization, please visit www.crosstalkglobal.org. You can also support this show by rating it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're enjoying it. Be sure to listen next Friday as we continue our discussion of the book of 1 Samuel. You won't want to miss it.